only when you can actually understand your own model to know its shortcomings can you make any progress. This is James McGinn of Solvent Tornadoes, and today we're going to talk about how current meteorology locks in its confusion by failing to take notice of evidence that if they actually considered it on a literal basis, they would have to concede that there's something there that's mysterious. Now, of course, saying something's mysterious doesn't mean you have the answer, but only when you can actually understand your own model to know its shortcomings can you make any progress. Now, let me give you a specific example. One of the notions associated with tornado genesis is that the molecules that are in the sheath, the part that's going around the flow, the part that's seemingly isolating the flow from what's going on externally, the physics of that simply don't make sense if they are a gas. Let me explain there. What I'm saying is that when things are gases, when they're genuine gases, the molecules are always trying to be getting away from each other. Now, the only thing that could induce them to follow along with each other, all of being in a container or being attracted to each other or maybe even both. But I guess it's easy for me to see the problems I'm leading up to because I've already solved them. All I can do is tell you my clear understanding why they, they being meteorologists, should have paid more attention to and should have made more of an effort to figure out what's going on. And I'll just bring the uh, conversation back around to the main point, that being that air doesn't just travel in a curved path if there's not a reason for it to travel in a curved path. And I'm specifically talking about the sheath of the tornado, right? It's traveling in a curved path. Now, like I said, there's really only two ways that that can happen. One is that there's some kind of a container, like a tube that it's funneling into, but that would mean that there had to be something structural about what's causing that. And the only other way is they're attracted to each other. And so this moist air, it is the moist air, by the way, that takes the trip around the circular path. It's not the dry air. The dry air is the air in a tornado that's shooting straight up at very high speeds. And of course, where those two layers interact all along that tube, that's where the wind shear is conserved in the tube itself. Since it does conserve energy and since the existence of the substance that spins up, this, this H2O-based plasma only occur under high energy conditions, it's kind of a perfect cause and effect. We have this plasma appearing on the scene that is literally providing the structural aspect of a tube. We can also look at it very simply as the fact that the molecules in the moist layer are more attracted to each other than are those in the dry layer. It's, it's that simple. We can understand but we have to be appreciative of the fact that air that has different levels of moisture in it has different properties in terms of its ability to be attracted to each other than air that has less moisture in it. And along a boundary, that effect, that increased ability to attract itself is itself amplified because of the fact that H2O has an inverse relationship between degree of connectedness, which is reduced under these conditions, and the strength of that connectedness, which causes there to be an underlying hidden strength in H2O, and that's what comes to the surface. It's We can essentially think of it as a form of surface tension that's a result of an amplified ability to achieve surface, and so I call it surface tension on steroids, because it really is surface tension, but it's highly active and it needs constant input from that wind shear to maintain its existence. Without that, it's gonna die out pretty quick. But it does have its own internal momentum to it also, 
so it has a kind of kind of a sledgehammer effect to tell you the truth there's like some high energy there associated with the fact that this stuff's able to keep a form and it also needs to have a constant source of that wind shear now of course I wouldn't expect modern meteorology to be able to come to that conclusion because that conclusion takes, you know, a whole bunch of steps that involve understanding H2O first. Nevertheless, though, I do expect them to at least be able to look at what we're seeing. When you see a tornado, you're seeing an entity. It's doing things that couldn't possibly happen if there wasn't some difference in viscosity of the air and if there wasn't also amplification of that difference in viscosity. I mean, when you see the energy of a tornado, how can you not suspect that there's some other physics going on there? And so it's our ignorance of H2O mixed with the fact that we wanted to pretend like we understood it when really we didn't. And with the fact that we're kind of pretending like the phenomenon, just a mystery. Well, I'm just concerned about what's true. I mean, is it true that you can have air form into these tubes without there being something structural going on? I think not. I think there must be something structural. And I think the origin of that structure is in the water. And it's being increased surface tension, the surface tension on steroids aspect that can only happen under conditions where you have micro droplets that are spinning very rapidly, which happens on wind shear boundaries and so you put those together and it kind of tells a story now the fact that meteorology wants to believe something different is kind of meaningless because none of them really have a clear idea of what it is they believe and i'm specifically talking about storm theory which is completely unsurprising to me i'm in the strange position of after becoming a physicist i went into meteorology and came to fully realize the degree to which they are kind of hovering between mystery and science. And it's, and it's not a very concise empirical science, kind of more of a continuing conversation. And they've come up with terminology that allows us to dismiss, dismiss a lot of the, the things that are really the big clues. And that's where they're confused. The observation of a tornado is a big clue that there's some different physics going on there. You know, that you can have that degree of high energy at one focus point and then a hundred yards away have structures still standing, you know, as we see in some of these tornado paths. You know, it's, it's a little bit hard to fathom how they haven't suspected that their model might be wrong. And that's kind of what happens with meteorology is it, it just gets the things that people want to believe. That's what any kind of a conversational discipline, that's going to be their nature. That's going to be how they operate. They're going to be kind of a continuing story. Continuing story inspired by science, but not strictly science. Now, a big problem here is physics and chemistry and their continuing somewhat politicized confusion about water, about the science of water. It's kind of more of the same rhetoric that means nothing. And that's easily solved once you realize one little thing. Now, remember I said earlier that H2O has, there's an inverse relationship between the strength of connectedness and the degree of connectedness. And that because of that, you get these properties showing up in places where you don't expect this kind of what we call surface tension on steroids. And so 
if disciplines of chemistry and physics who kind of dictate what everyone believes about the physics of water, if they didn't have so many layers of confusion that's preventing them from making the breakthrough to the simple realization that H2O is a solvent of its own polarity, and that that's how and why it achieves some of these other behaviors like the one I just mentioned, and, and there's other ones associated with its heat capacity, and there's other forms of surface tension, and there's non-Newtonian fluids, and there's um, a number of things where we see H2O having structural properties. And then when you understand that, the fact that H2O is, is first of all polar, secondly a solvent of its own polarity, and then you can start to understand why it has these characteristics. One of those being is this ability to spin up into kind of a plasma on wind shear boundaries. And that's what fits the whole puzzle together. Until you get water right, there's just no way in the world you're going to figure out what's actually happening in a storm. You're never going to understand H2O's role. H2O's role is mostly structural, and it has to do with the ability of these structural properties to appear on the scene and focus the flow. And also protect the flow and essentially put pipes around it as it flows over the top of the troposphere, which is the circulatory system of Earth. And it's a naturally occurring circulatory system that involves these naturally occurring tubes. So what chance does meteorology have if chemistry and physics can't get it right? What chance would they have? What chance does meteorology have figuring out that H2O is the solvent of its own polarity? And out of that, part of this continuing conversation came this notion that water served a thermal role and an energetic role in the context of storms. And they came up with these other kinds of pseudoscientific notions. Part of the narrative, I guess you could say, of meteorology as to how they told the story of H2O and its involvement in storms. And that story, it started out at a time when things like steam trains were a big deal and people had simplistic understandings of many parts of nature not to mention the fact that there was very little good data on the actual physics associated with H2O so there was a lot of confusion and that story part of this continuing conversation came this notion that water served a thermal role and an energetic role in the context of storms and they came up with those other kinds of pseudoscientific notions or one of them's convection, another one is dry layer capping, and another one is latent heat of condensation. And all of these involve some somewhat mysteriously and somewhat magical properties of H2O that are all thermal and energetic. It's kind of rhetorical, all these notions. And that was referred to as their storm theory. It literally started in the 1840s. It's kind of an article put forth in a conversational manner by, by a guy, and it just kind of caught on. You know, that's the, just the way things have always been in meteorology, and, and that's just the way they are, you know? It's just their history. That's the way they think about things. To many, what I'm about to say now about the convection model of storm theory may seem blasphemous. Uh, you know, it may seem like I'm going against something um, that's, that's on a, a deep level of knowledge. 
and I want to suggest though that that feeling, that feeling that of blasphemy, which is a feeling that people feel when they're oblivious to even responding because something seems out so outrageous, but that feeling should suggest to you that maybe your understanding is not really on a rational basis, but maybe partly or or even mostly on an emotional basis. And that's what I'm finding when I confront people about the convection model of storm theory is um, it's an emotional thing for them. Their notions of convection, uh, their notions of the most lunatic, lunatanical, in my opinion, of all those is this notion of latent heat of condensation because it also involves some magic uh, jumping through the hoops associated with H2O's literally measured properties, phase properties. You know, they're, they're literally violating what can be verified on an H2O phase table in order to get their theory to maintain the appearance that it really makes sense when really it's just nonsense. It's just non-physical, meaningless. Uh, and that's really what's going on with the convection model of storm theory. There's really nothing there. That's the way I see it. And all you got to do is look at the theory itself to see that, to know that. Now, I don't mean to say that the people who developed this theory were not well-intended, and they certainly, they certainly were. And I think their intentions were to at least get the ball rolling in terms of um, coming up with terminology that we can begin to discuss the physics of storms, especially considering in those earliest years all you had was observation from the ground. You know, you didn't really have much, a, a lot of other data. Unfortunately, though, in order to come up with this terminology, someone had to tell a real good story. And that's what happened. They, someone told a real good story. The story served its purpose. It generated the, ne the necessary terminology with which we could now discuss what we're observing. But there's just one big problem. This terminology brought with it assumptions that don't really have anything to do directly with reality. And on top of that, us humans doing the best we can to make something look like it should, went out of our way to create all kinds of excuses for this theory, excuses for the fact that, among other things, it's never been tested and isn't really even something that's concisely definable such that it can be tested. Now, the first one's a difficulty. That second one there, though, and that's really where it is, is that the whole model, based on these kind of vague notions of H2O, are really H2O having these mostly thermal qualities and these energetic properties. Um, these models are, are, are science fiction. You know, when you actually look at the details of them, They've taken something that's part of H2O's properties, its thermal properties, and there's really not a lot of drama there. In fact, it's it, it's the opposite of drama. It's negative feedback. You know, that's what we're seeing in H2O. Uh, you know, it's most notably the, the liquid phase of it, of course. But, you know, they achieved what they were trying to do. They brought forth a terminology. They brought forth a, a, a narrative, a scenario. But... Here's where they made the, the biggest mistake. There are basically two categories 
of physical properties that you can that are distinctive about H2O and with respect to what it does at different temperatures and under different conditions and that that are notable and that you you know you will find in textbooks and all and some of these are thermal mostly having to do with its high heat capacity its ability to absorb heat and release it gradually and the other ones involve this concept of tensional forces that appear along surfaces and combine that with the notion that surfaces can can actually be much more extensive in a three-dimensional manner if the right conditions exist and when that's done it does create structural properties that seem to be irrational they, they seem to be magical but they're really associated with the appearance of uh, polarity when the conditional factors reduce its tendency to neutralize its own polarity which is a little bit more complicated so what happened is they chose the wrong category they got lost on the thermal qualities of H2O when really they should have looked more at the structural capabilities and they should have also looked at what is the most obvious evidence and that is when you these entities which are viewable and that are shown to have very high degrees of energy associated with them you know the most obvious one we're talking about here are very intense storms like tornadoes or hurricanes and by realization of that, they had looked at H2O as a source of the structure, and they had looked at the flow itself as being something that will be facilitated by structure. That's a hard one for people to get, but let me kind of go into that here in a second. But, you know, if they had done these things, they would have eventually found uh, what I found. Now... This notion that there's structure associated with higher flow is one that might seem counterintuitive because we normally think of something that's structural, let's say like a mountain, as something that blocks or, or slows down flow. And that has to do with this kind of misconception that we all have about the atmosphere, and that is that we fail to recognize what we refer to as the friction of gases which we would think to be a big part of an atmosphere that is, you know, 98% indisputably gaseous, right? 98% gaseous. It's, in those numbers, it's a highly gaseous planet that we live on. But of course, uh, when water gets involved, there's funny things that seem to be happening. And, you know, there's other trace gases involved too. But it's important to just be cognizant of the fact that these concepts convective uplift or convection or buoyancy whatever words you want to use are uh, non-physical they're not tested or testable dry layer blocking that's plainly irrational it's saying that gases the, you know the part of the atmosphere that has no water is going to have higher structural properties than the part of the atmosphere that does contain water and that therefore does contain an element that has nano droplets mixed in that have surfaces and these surfaces have surface tension right so it's going to be very slight under these conditions the moist air but the moist air is going to be more solid it's going to be more of a of a of a very weak plasma or a very weak um low viscosity liquid we would we might say relative to the dry air the dry air is going to be wispy because that's what dry air is it doesn't have any structural capabilities 
whatsoever. The observation that we have these dry layers blocking moist layers below is based on that anecdote of looking at that layer and drawing conclusions that are not really well understood because there's there's just complexities there that fool us. It's a you know, and we see that inversion layer and we think it means something and. Um, of course, it does mean something, but really what it means is that there's moist layer, and on top of that, there's a dry layer, and that's not unusual because that's the way layers lay out in all parts of the atmosphere. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of really the way the atmosphere works. It, it really is based on these tubes, and these tubes, though, are up pretty high, they feed into the jet stream, and they can have lengths as long as hundreds or thousands of miles and eventually go all the way to the equator along the top of that troposphere, which is the place in the atmosphere where you have the, the greatest and most consistent distinction between moist air and dry air. In other words, you have the greatest wind shear boundary up there. Now, if it was the case that water always rose up to that level, we would never have storms because there'd be no reason for these vortices to trend downward. But what happens is, since their construction is partly a result of water, when moisture starts to fall out of the air, they tend to also follow the path. In other words, because of that, these low-pressure pockets of fast-moving moist air do sometimes spin off and go down and create a storm. And they do it by way of following these boundary layers that occur naturally in our atmosphere. And keep them, you know, it, it, a boundary layer is not really all that simple a thing. Um, but I'll kind of give you a hint as to why tornadoes happen. It's because the boundary layers themselves are intersecting, the, intersecting with the ground. And that's where the tornado is going to occur. Just be aware that it's being fed low-pressure energy from maybe hundreds of miles away. But that's the way our atmosphere works. You know, that vortices, those naturally occurring vortices that start from the jet stream when they first originate, grow down, cause storms, and, and so doing, open up this passageway that shoots very fast air moving directly into the jet stream to thereby at one of the same time be the engine of the jet stream. Now, in a sense, we just solved another problem that meteorology pretends to not notice. And that is that if we do have these jet streams, in which were discovered around World War II, by the way, that we do have these jet streams kind of flowing along. So we'd expect them to slow down, but they don't ever slow down. They keep getting propelled along. Well, now we kind of have a physical explanation of how the jet stream actually maintains that momentum in that these vortices will constantly be shooting directly into them. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of really the way the atmosphere works. It, it really is based on these tubes. And these tubes, though, rely on somewhat pristine conditions happening over large surfaces, large flat surfaces, essentially, but you know, kind of like large sheets that occur naturally in the atmosphere where you have a distinct difference between the dry air above and the moist air below. We refer to these things, and they occur mostly along, you know, the, the top of the troposphere where you're 
bumping up against the stratosphere, but they also, like we said, do occur throughout the atmosphere, and they kind of get mixed in. There's kind of a constant mixing, and, and these boundaries themselves are part of that mixture. And so there's a certain kind of randomness built into it because of that. But um, kind of keep in mind that there is kind of a rhythm to it, too, along the lines that where you have the quietest conditions, you have the ability of boundary layers to form um, more distinct differences between moist air and dry air and happening over longer distances, that's very important, forming these giant areas where a vortice can form. That's really what the vortice needs, is that distinct, flat difference between moist air and dry air, because that's the substance of its existence. It's the substance of wind shear. Now, it's, when there is that wind shear, though, is when that one of those layers gets tipped up and the, and the air starts to flow downhill, and, you know, kind of, kind of just like a, an avalanche happening over hundreds of thousands of miles where the, the dry air on top starts to just move over the, cause an acceleration right along that boundary because a surface is actually forming. And that surface is the moist air that's spinning up. That's where you're, you're getting this increased surface tension, the surface tension on steroids. It's a result of dry air molecules having glancing impacts on moist air molecules and causing them to spin, causing them to polymerize, thereby increasing the surface tension. Again, surface tension on steroids. So, um, the actual algorithm of a storm, you know, if we were to say, you know, what are the factors involved? Well, one of the factors is this period of calm weather that allows boundary layers to form into more distinct and more capable of being um, of forming the vortices that are necessary to deliver the low pressure energy of storms. So you kind of get the logic there. There's this, the low pressure energy of storms actually comes from the jet stream itself. Okay, that's an important thing to understand. And it's delivered down these tubes going against the flow, by the way, going from east to west. That's the path of delivery of low pressure. And of course, the low pressure pulse itself is instrumental into the formation of the tubes. And these things exist over, um, they have persistence. They actually run for hundreds of miles, but they're usually very slight, so you wouldn't even notice them. But yeah, this is how the atmosphere actually delivers the low pressure energy of storms. And since it's the low pressure energy that makes a severe weather more severe, if you can control that delivery or inhibit it in some way, in a calculated way, in a way that, in which you understand this notion of it being delivered through a tube, if you can inhibit it, you might be able to control severe weather or reduce its severity. And so, as you can kind of understand that for a, a meteorologist to arrive at this, you know, you might as well be asking them to build a rocket to go to the moon because the reality of what's going on is so distinct from anything they have any experience with. They don't really even understand water and they don't know why they don't understand water and they don't even think about it, frankly. Physics and chemistry is still so confused. The basics of H2O have to be understood very clearly. It's polar and it's a solvent of its own polarity on the basis of one each with up to four of its neighbors, 25% from up to four of its neighbors. 
And so, you know, if you did want to understand what I'm doing here, uh, the best place I could direct you to is to first get your understanding of H2O under, get, get that clear in your head. And you can do that by looking at my two videos that have the title, let me see now, The Most Devastatingly Subtle Misconception in the Whole Dang History of Science. You can do a, a Google search on that or something, or you can look at that under my YouTube channel. And watch those two videos, and I'm going to be putting out a third here pretty soon that deals with ice. You'll see that this is, this is what allows all the pieces of the puzzle come together, and then we can actually understand what storms are doing. And we can, as I'm going to be pursuing here very shortly, you know, uh, get a company going along the lines of actually applying this and see if we can actually, you know, either stop a tornado or steer a hurricane and, you know, make the, uh, the world a little bit of a better place because of that. So, yeah, as I was saying, the correct model of the atmosphere recognizes the major obstacle to the existence of flow as being that friction, that friction of, of dry air. This is something that is really important to understand about the atmosphere in terms of correctly understanding its nature. You have to be aware that if it was, let's say, 100% gaseous, it would be incapable of any kind of streaming. Think of this. Let's say you wanted to blow out a candle across the room. Now, you could stand there all day blowing from where you are, and you're probably not going to blow it out. But if you had a hose that led right up to the candle, you would do one little puff and you would blow out the candle. Now, my point here being, in terms of the actual transfer of energy, or and really it's pressure, because energy and heat, they all uh, correlate with pressure in the atmosphere, Anything to cut through all that friction would have to involve some type of tube. And therefore you could never get the high wind speeds that we do observe. And since we do observe them, there must be something causing them. And therefore they're, in a sense, I'm circling back around with my reasoning here to arrive at the conclusion that therefore there must be tubes in the atmosphere. I know that's a little bit circular reasoning there, but I think it's important to understand, though, it's not like I'm talking about aliens. We've seen tornadoes. We've seen severe weather. We've seen high degrees of streaming. We know that the jet stream exists. So streaming does exist. Therefore, there must be a cause of it, and it can't be the gases. So it must be what's remaining and what's mostly there. Well, it's water. And then we have to figure out, well, how? How can water do this? You know, that, who's ever heard of that? How can water do this? Well, unless you actually investigate that question, you're not going to get to the answer. Whoever convinced us in our childhood that we shouldn't follow that, or maybe it wasn't someone who convinced us, maybe it's something innate inside of us that brings us to not think that these kind of core questions that seem obvious need to be answered in a definitive manner or else we don't really understand the element we're dealing with. So we need, to, we need to understand literally what's going on with the H2O molecule to understand what it might be capable of. And of course, that's, you know, that's simply the way I approached it. I, I said, okay, well, let's... And then I followed the, the breadcrumbs of the trail that started with surface tension. I actually didn't really, when I first started on it, I didn't really have a clear conception in my own mind of what's 
you know, what, what that phrase meant, you know, surface tension. I've heard, I've heard it a few times. I've heard it, you know, associated with what helps, allows us to pick up something, you know, and have it be relatively, you know, sticky in our fingers and that kind of a thing. But I didn't really know beyond that what it meant. And so then, you know, that caused me to look into it deeper and to investigate what's going on with, with the fundamentals of our understanding. And that's where I found a big problem and I fixed it, you know, and the rest is history. So um, my point here is that the reason it was completely impossible to imagine meteorology ever figuring out the true physics of storms as I have is because their approach was so completely backwards, completely not understanding the actual evidence that was laying right before them and that that was plainly you know it really wasn't that hard to figure out as long as you looked at it from that perspective as long as you said well you know there's got to be something you know you really have to start from that understanding that gases have high friction and that they don't stream because only when you understand that will you understand the importance of water and only when you understand that will you realize that water's importance has to do with its structural properties it's not its thermal or energetic properties no it's the structural part of it because that's what allows us to understand how pressure can be channeled over long distances to produce the high wind speeds we actually do see in the atmosphere assuming we can figure out what are the pipes so you see there's kind of a back and forth there we we have to figure out the pipes if we're going to figure out the streaming and so, you know, the breakthrough came through the realization that surface tension did not, we, not, we did not have to look at it as a constant. It, is, it was something that on the surface, we're just seeing the, the top of the iceberg on that, you know, to use an overused expression. You know, the surface that we see on water and we say, oh, look, there's surface. Well, that's actually a microcosm of its capabilities because when that same phenomenon is turned three-dimensional, it becomes much more powerful. And that's what's actually happening in the vortices, which are the plumbing of our atmosphere, and that sometimes have malfunctions that result in uh, tornadoes and hurricanes, or not so much malfunctions as, you know, over uh, working too well, I guess you could say. And so, like I said, yeah, the, the correct model involves plumbing. And it's the structural properties of water there's surface tension on steroids that spin up on wind shear boundaries that is the lead of the lead pipes of the plumbing of the atmosphere. In other words, that's the stuff from which it's made. And it's an actual substance that has literal structural capabilities. And my point is that's how it should be considered. And when you do that, um, figuring, out, figuring out tornadoes is not that hard, to be honest. It's not. So uh, this is James McGinn solving tornadoes. Thank you. Bye.